Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, I'm reading, speaking of Bloomberg Intelligence, I'm reading some research here. It says, most commodities are melting except for gold. What stops it? Let's mm. go right to the person who wrote this stuff. Mike McGlone, he covers all the uh, commodity stuff. He's a senior macro strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, what are you thinking about these days in terms of the commodity space? What are you telling your clients? What are the conversations you're having with your clients about commodities? Well, hello, Paul. I appreciate you reading that headline because it's something I like to reiterate periodically, particularly when it's relevant, is typically historically over time, gold is the best performing commodity. Now, basically, because it's not really a commodity, it's 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 a store of value. It's a metal. I mean, you can store it on your body in terms of jewelry, but certainly lately it's been the key case. It's the best performing commodity this year. It's up 10% and the average of the Bloomberg Commodity Index this year is down 16%. And the key thing I like to ask myself is, those are bodies in motion. And as a strategist, I say, okay, is it going to stay the same, reverse, or accelerate? I think it's more likely to accelerate, particularly at some point if we get to a, a point where the Fed pivots, it's going to happen. Um, but that's the bottom line is we had this massive pump in, in commodities last year, and they're proving what they always do. Elasticity, supply, demand makes commodities their worst enemy. It's the higher price cure, as the farmers say. <laughs> Well, that, but that's interesting, though. I, f I feel like we're a far bit away, at least if you listen to Jay Powell on Friday, from when we see the Fed reverse course. I mean, talk me through the timeline there. Um, when would you expect well, yeah, gold to start showing some outperform? I mean, I guess it is showing outperformance, right? That's the point. Gold's looking ahead, and that's a key point. They will probably not be cutting rates anytime soon, particularly in my view, until the stock market tells them to. And that's part of the lose-lose for risk assets. There's then a high high connection and correlation between stock market bouncing this year, all this massive fiscal stimulus, and the Fed hiking another 100 basis points. They are still on that hiking trajectory. Despite then, you look over commodities, what's the number one source of demand historically, at least the last 20 years or so, is China. Demand estimate revisions heading lower in China, China are just getting started. So uh, they're, they're key customers, they're key export customers. Europe, U.S. and Europe are in these early days of just getting showing signs of the, what you expect from high interest rates jumping. And then, of course, the leader of China, President Xi, cozied up with Putin right before the war. So we see that tilt just get us out. Um, and so th that to me is this is early days. So I look at this as what's normal is potentially a very bearish scenario for commodities. And you look at yourself. So what's going to change is typically also you need a weak dollar. And for the dollar to get weak, we have a major issue there. It's the hardest to, you know, most expensive to short commodity or currency on the planet, particularly if you look very compared versus the top, you know, top uh, G, top uh, commodities and uh, I'm sorry, economies on the planet, China, Japan, and uh, Germany, U.S. is just a much higher rate. So that to me is a basically a train wreck heading for commodities and for deflation. So Mike, I know you, you come from the land of the great American farmer. I wonder how the <laughs> American farmers doing here. I'm looking at corn down 30% year to date, soybeans down 8% year to date, wheat down 26% year to date. How is the farmer doing these days? They are crushing it. So, um, it's, even with prices it's down so much. Oh, well, down from where they were. So okay. corn right now, the number one, it's, as I'm going back next next week, and lesson I learned growing and raising, having owned the farm in the corn belt, we plant soybeans so we can plant corn. We plant corn because that's what we do and that's where we make our money. It's the world's most significant <laughs> commodity. Wait a that's second, just you the plant way it soybeans to plant, to plant corn? corn? Why? How's that it's, work? It's a rotation because soybeans add nitrogen and fertilizer to the soil. 
um, and they're a, a, a legume. Corn takes it away. It's very nitrogen expensive. It's a grass. It's just that rotation that the, the Corn Belt has crushed. But the bottom line is partly because of this war in Europe, you've had prices well above their costs of productions. And the costs of, costs of production, for instance, anhydrous ammonia is collapsing. And so we're making a lot of money. It's just called profits. What do profits mean for farmers? Production. So this year is probably going to be close to the biggest production year ever for corn. Just in the weather's not so great. And also what it what did it do with corn and soybeans in Argentina and I'm sorry in, in South America, but most notably in Brazil, record production, I mean off the charts. So this is just the normal elasticity of supply and demand in, in, in the area of, of the commodities we can bring on that supply in one year. And the bottom line is they're making a lot of money. And that means more supply, more production, and it means typically lower prices. But I'll just end with this. September is the worst month of the year for grains, typically because of harvest. And that's how futures came about, because they needed to start hedging, most notably when they all try to sell at the same time. Ah. And I've, I've been so looking at I've been I've been pulling out, pulling back a little bit our, our uh our commodity price for corn, and right. we, we're we're at levels where we were in late 2020, but those are substantially higher than where we were in um previous to that yep. um talk me through mike what's what's happening in 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 wheat um because you know we have all this stuff with the grain deal and turkey um very interested to see where you think this is going also so the significance of wheat is that was at the epicenter of what happened with russia's um, i'm sorry president um, um, President Putin's invasion of Ukraine, but it's been in a straight downward trajectory since reaching that high last year, right around $13 a bushel. But typically what wheat does, now it's back to a level that was kind of enduring before, because what happens is you can bring on wheat supply rapidly, and it's the most widely grown agricultural cro um, crop and every, almost every country in the world can grow wheat. Now, Ukraine was a big, expo big exporter. U.S., we export over 55% of our wheat. We grow less of it every day because it's so much easier to produce. It's basically considered a weed. Um, and it's one commodity you never want to be long after it goes up. <laughs> it's just the way it works because you bring it on. So wheat's been a good indicator. Right now, it's around $6 a bushel. And I view it's all going to continue to trend lower unless we get some kind of surprise out of that war, which means hopefully not, but something nuclear could do it. But here's, this is a situation similar to World War II for the grain, for the grain belt, the corn belt, which is where I'm from. And that is prices and the war in Europe kept prices rather, rather high, which meant U.S. did very well, created more and more production and profited. And then it all collapsed once the war ended and we had way too much supply. That is the, the risk. And that's markets are looking ahead to that. So real quick, uh, WTI crude oil, we're going to switch gears here. $80 a barrel seems to found a little bit of a home here for a while. Yes, it's happy. It's consolidating well. It's the same price as, uh, I'll put this back in the history. This price here was first traded in 2007. Now, imagine if we said that about uh, the stock market. Yet, yep. over that time period, the PPI is up 50%. In terms of gold, here's one for you. It takes 0.042 ounces of gold to buy one barrel of crude oil. That's the same price as 1931. Crude oil is the world's wow. most autocorrelated asset and has a lot of reason to continue trade lower after that big pump last year. 15% of all sales of EVs in the world now are, 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 are automobiles are EVs. And then, of course, that supply out of the U.S. The biggest thing that's pressured uh, crude oil the last at least almost 15 years is the U.S. We just create much more than we need. Yep. And with Canada, our surplus every day is about 4 million barrels a day of liquid fuels. So we can fill up the SPR, the Strategic yep. Petroleum Reserve, in just a few months. Interesting. Yeah. All right, Mike, always learn something with you. Um, you put in soybeans to do corn. I learned that. that that's new. Mike McGlone, senior macro strategist and Bloomberg's resident uh, farmer uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The IPO market looks like it might be heating up a little bit. Had a couple of filings late last week, Arm Holdings, uh, uh, the chip maker, and then the grocery delivery company 
Instacart. So we want to talk about that deal. Uh, Brianne Lynch joins us. She's head of market insight at Equity Zen. She joins us here. So Brianne, talk to us about Instacart here. What did we learn from their IPO filing last week? Yeah, thanks for having me. I think Instacart really painted a picture in that filing of what companies are going to need to show if they want to have a, potentially a successful IPO. So this is a company that is growing. They grew transaction revenue 39% year over year. They're profitable with 15% operating margins, which a lot of other players in the gig economy space that are public, like Uber, Lyft, Dash, you know, they all are not presenting um, you know, profitability yet. And this is both a brand that people recognize and a business model that people know. So definitely a strong one that could potentially open up the IPO market for others. Well, the interesting bit as well to me, and we were talking with this uh, about this with our uh, equity reporter Bailey Lipschitz earlier, is that this company had been valued much, much higher yeah. uh, as of 2021, I believe $39 billion, according to PitchBook. Uh, and right. now, you know, the valuation here are going to be maybe 70% less. Um, talk to me about how investors kind of get comfortable allowing this company or going along with the company's plans to IPO here. Um, how, how does this change the dialogue between the company and its existing investors? Sure. So, Instacart has already been priming its investors about this. So while they did raise that $39 billion round in 2021, their internal valuations uh, have gone as low as $10 billion, now closer to $13 billion. So this is for the equity that they're issuing to new employees or you know new stock grants. That's the valuation that they've given themselves. So internally, at least, they've accepted that haircut. And I think that's ultimately the tough pill that a lot of these venture-backed companies are going to have to swallow is we raised money at a crazy valuation in 2021. It's not where the market is anymore. And if we're going to raise capital in either the private or public markets, it's most likely going to be at a discount. Um, and I think investors understand that as well, just given where multiples are. Uh, with the case of Instacart, you have Dash as a public market competitor. Um, that's a pretty... Um, good comp that helps from a valuation perspective. So uh, speaking of DoorDash, um, Brienne, I mean, this has become a crowded space really since the pandemic as, as this market's really e developed and evolved. Where does Instacart kind of position itself in terms of its competition, whether it is DoorDash or Uber Eats or Amazon and all that type of thing? Yeah, so they're by far the market leader. Uh, both Uber and DoorDash have less than 1% of the grocery market. And it's a market that they're aggressively uh, pursuing, but they still are not big players in it. When you look at all of the grocery players, Instacart has partnerships with over 85% of them. And this is a $1.1 trillion market. The largest retail market um, is grocery. So it's a huge market where they are already the leaders. So there is a lot of competition, but they are one foot ahead. But to your point, it's not just these other kind of uh, gig uh, economy players they're up against. They're up against Amazon Fresh. They're up against Walmart Grocery um, and other players that you know have a lot more resources just from being bigger companies. So there is a lot of competition. Yeah, does that competition um, scare would-be investors in this space at all because you know you think of amazon coming into any space and it's just sort of it, yeah. you know ha has the potential to be transformative even if they've struggled a little bit with their with expanding their grocery footprint yeah so they got a strong vote of confidence by pepsi who's investing 175 million in this ipo and a lot of the thesis or, um, you know, the bull case that they see is around the advertising piece of Instacart's business. So about 30% of their revenue comes from advertising. So when they highlight different products, uh, you know, on their marketplace to users, and this actually helps diversify their revenue stream um, in ways that, you know, some of these other players haven't done yet. Uh, and it's also the piece of their business that is driving their profitability. So that's uh, kind of a a unique or you know a strong point that they have now that uh, investors have found compelling. Growth has slowed a little bit for for this company. Is it is that just a post pandemic 
kind of evening out of this marketplace in terms of number of subscribers and in terms of that metric? Yeah, in terms of, I would say they they haven't saturated the market fully, but you know they did see such growth during the pandemic that it's probably more about activation. So of these customers you have who have used Instacart, how do you get people, um, you know, more captive on the platform? They haven't admitted and understand that it's not going to be online only for every customer, people will still be going to stores. So it's more about, you know, activating those customers and then just improving their margins, um, you know, amongst those who are transacting. So they have grown revenue, they've grown, uh, grown average cart size over the same period. So even if their customer base isn't growing, um, you know, their revenue is growing. We saw as well um, a filing by ARM for, for its mega listing um, I believe it was a filing. Um, but yep. we, uh, what threads are there here for you that you're starting to see evolve in in the the IPO space? Because I think there was a bit, a fair bit of hesitancy for a while, um, just given what had happened to IPOs in 2021, um, and now maybe we're turning around. It looks like we're starting to turn around. This year has been the worst year for IPOs since 2009. We really haven't seen that many blockbuster names hit the market. Uh, and Instacart and Arm, those will be the largest IPOs in the US since Rivian in 2021. So definitely starting to signify um, this turning tide. And ultimately you have over 1400 unicorn tech companies sitting in the private markets, many of whom have been waiting uh, for the right opportunity to have an exit. Their investors are ready for an exit. Their employees who maybe have gotten some liquidity but are looking for you know broader liquidity are looking for an exit. Uh, and I think the fact that you know while there's been some recent market volatility, you have the NASDAQ up 30%. Um, you've seen a few successful IPOs, though not tech IPOs like Kava, Oddity, and Kenview hit the market, uh, people are feeling a little bit more comfortable, like this may be the time if they're looking to exit this year. I think for, for a lot of investors, uh, I think for me, the thing that jumped out at me is, as Simone was mentioning earlier, the dramatic reduction in valuation. I think that's kind of been kind of a, a gating issue for a lot of these companies not tapping the public markets because they didn't want to take that big uh, write down on, on valuation. Is the expectation that maybe Instacart will maybe open the way for more companies to kind of bite the bullet, if you will? Absolutely. I think Instacart doing this and kind of taking it on the chin is going to open the door for others who realize like, it, it'll become less taboo, essentially, <laughs> as more companies accept these valuation write downs. Um, it becomes less of a, you know, a negative and just more a reflection of how multiples have corrected. So I do think that they will make it easier for other companies doing this as well. You know, Clavio is another company, a marketing automation platform that also filed their S1 on Friday, got a little lost in the Instacart news. But this is a company that raised at a $9.5 billion valuation in 2021. So they're likely to be one that is, you know, trading down from those levels as well. So it's just kind of a reality for where we are in the market. All right, Brianne, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate getting your thoughts there. We're getting some uh, IPO filings starting to hit the tape, maybe get a little bit of a, uh, a action in the fall here with the IPO market. Brianne Lynch, Head of Market Insight at Equity Zen. And again, uh, you like to think maybe we're going to get a little bit of deal activity uh, once everybody comes back from the summer. Yeah, I mean, busy Friday, <laughs> even though um, even though Clavio is not quite as large a company uh, and likely will not be quite as large a company when Instacart. Yeah, Instacart, yeah, uh, you know, it's going to be a pretty big transaction. Uh, we're going to have all the big investment banks are there. Uh, this deal is being led by Goldman Sachs, uh, so it'll be uh, certainly a deal that people will pay attention to. And there are some comps out there, as Brianne was mentioning. So see how that plays out. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa. Play Bloomberg 1130. Looking, I mean, we're talking about VinFast. You know what a crazy name that is. Story that is. The exact opposite might be Minnesota Mining 
and manufacturing. 3M, you're talking industrial heartland, been around mm -hmm. forever. I'm looking at this stock over the last five years. It's down 10% on a compounded annual basis, whereas the S&P is up a little more than 10%. So really underperformed the market, but they're in the news today. And we want to talk about 3M. We want to talk about uh, industrial America and what's happening out there. Brooke Sutherland, she covers all of that uh, so well for us. She's a columnist covering industrials and deals for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So 3M, I guess the story today, Brooke, is agrees to pay more than $5.5 billion over combat earplugs. Can you give us the background of this story? Sure. Um, so 3M sold, they were dual-ended earplugs to the U.S. military through its Aero uh, technology subsidiary, which it acquired. Um, and the idea was that on one side, it would sort of block out everything, um, and the other would block out sort of immediate near-term um, gunfire sounds, but you could still hear the person sitting next to you, which obviously huh. has a lot of appeal right. for the U.S. military. Um, but the veterans have claimed that these earplugs did not, in fact, work uh, and left them instead with hearing loss and tinnitus. And so this has been sort of a mushrooming legal challenge for 3M. Uh, veterans were increasingly winning bellwether trials, and 3M then made the move last summer to put the Aero Technologies subsidiary into bankruptcy as a means of sort of speeding up the resolution of those claims. Now, a judge earlier in June said, you can't do that. Uh, this is not a valid reorganization um, purpose. Um, and, you know, the company was appealing that, but it, it looks like a rocky road. We've seen J&J run into legal challenges with a similar ploy um, involving some of those talc claims yep. uh, for that company. And so it looks like the company 3M is instead moving toward a settlement, which makes sense. I mean, this was really the only way that this probably was going to end for the company. Now, I understand that there are more issues that 3M's face. But first, is this is this it for this specific issue? Is this likely to, to kind of settle all the claims around the earplug issue. Sure. So we don't know a lot of the details, and so Bloomberg News has reported on this um, Sunday that this was in the works. It's a tentative deal at this point. I think it'll be interesting to see what the actual details look like once we get the final paperwork. Um, one of the things that's been reported is that this settlement would be paid out over five years, which is not what Wall Street was expecting. Um, if you think about the type of hearing loss we're talking about, if you you know lost your hearing because you were exposed to very loud gunfire, mm -hmm. this is not something that plays out over time that we are sort of waiting to see happen like you would with cancer claims. Okay. So I think analysts had been bracing for more of sort of an upfront payment. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see what that actually looks like. Uh, but, you know, theoretically, I, I don't think they would be moving forward with something like this unless they thought it was really going to put this issue behind them. Now, there will be sort of ramifications down the road. I do think you have to worry about a dividend cut at 3M, just mm. given the fact that yep. they've also separately agreed to a 12.5, uh, up to $12.5 billion settlement regarding PFAS and drinking water. Um, but that is not Ooh. the end of their PFAS liabilities by any stretch. And I think that dividend is just going to be under pressure here. Yeah, the dividend yield looking just about 5.8%. So that might be at some risk there. Um, for 3M, I mean, was this hearing, were these hearing aid issues just from the left since Afghanistan and Iraq from that time period or is it even before that? I'm not sure exactly on the, on the dates of the claims, but like I said, this has been sort of a mushrooming okay. issue that has, you know, certainly And it stocks up, up, stocks up about three or four percent. So I guess the market was thinking maybe it would have been a bigger number, maybe. Sure. And so, you know, a lot of analysts have been bracing for something in the $10 billion okay. range. Um, and, you know, I think the stock is up because, quite frankly, any progress is good progress right. for 3M on its legal issues. Um, you know, the stock has lost more than $50 billion um, in market value wow. since CEO Mike Roman took over in 2018. Mm. Um, like you said, it's been a serious underperformer. And some of that has to do with execution issues, operational hiccups um, within the company, tougher industrial markets. But a lot of it has to do with these legal liabilities that have just been hanging over the company's head and they're very open-ended and nobody could really put a number on it so the fact that we now have a number that we're talking about i think is a relief to shareholders yeah can you talk to us a little bit about these pfas obligations there's one 12 plus billion dollars but there may be more than that sure so the settlement that they've agreed to covers uh claims that pfas polluted drinking water supplies, and that's with U.S. public water systems. But there's These are a for, forever chemicals. Exactly. They exist forever. You you ingest them somehow, and then they're, they're bad. So 3M manufactured them for a range of products for years. They stopped making um, some of the most problematic compounds several decades ago, and then more recently have come out and said, we're getting out of PFAS altogether. But So we're talking about legacy manufacturing from years and years back. Um, so the settlement involves drinking water claims, but then there are also potentially liabilities involving 
state attorney generals, um, potentially the EPA, the military, then there are also foreign governments to consider because 3M has factories all over the world. Um, so Barclays analyst Julian Mitchell has put you know, some of these outstanding liabilities at about $16 billion, wow. in addition to the $12.5 billion that we've been talking about. And that does not include any sort of deals with a foreign government. That's just U.S. One of the biggest buckets is personal injury claims, property damage claims. Um, they just brought in a very big lawyer uh, or trying to bring in a big lawyer to help um, with some of those claims. Uh, he was the one who got the big tobacco settlement. Um, and so I think we could still see some big multi-billion dollar settlements. Brooke, you cover side. a lot of the big industrial companies. A lot of those companies are conglomerates. And conglomerates, it seems like from time to time, are in favor some of the times are out of favor. I've pitched it both ways as a banker, you know, wherever, which way the, the winds are blowing. You have a fascinating column out on that. Where are we now with just conglomerates? Do investors like them? Do they not like them? What's going on? So it's interesting because we went through a moment during the pandemic where all of a sudden diversity was an asset again because it was very helpful to not just be an aerospace company, for example. But even beyond that, you sort of had different markets recovering at different rates as we came out of the pandemic. Um, and you actually heard a lot more companies talking about diversity as an asset. And that message is not resonating in the same way now that we're sort of on the other side of that initial robust COVID comeback. And we're sort of seeing some markets slow down, other markets being more robust, and diversity is becoming a liability again. Now, there's not that many <laughs> big diversified industrial conglomerates left just left, because right. so many have done breakups, uh, spinoffs, what have you. Even 3M has, you know, is planning to spin off its healthcare unit at the end of this year. But there are a couple, um, and I think you know, we may see them come under, under more scrutiny. Is this a cyclical sort of thing? Because um, are there various times you know, over... Uh, when you look over periods of decades where it helps to be diversified because it helps insulate you from some risk and then all of a sudden you know the market recovers and activists say get rid of your XYZ division. It definitely is cyclical um, and to your point you know it's one thing to argue that diversity is a liability and then when times get tough and you're just an aerospace company then the numbers don't look so great um, but you know I, I, I do think it goes in waves and one of the comments that the industrials always make is if you look outside of manufacturing look at finance for example. Some of the big banks are in a wide variety of businesses. Look at the tech companies. Amazon will deliver goods to your front door, but then they also sell cloud computing services and they whole, own Whole Foods. And so there is you know, a number of examples of conglomerate out there um, in the markets. And I think one of the ironic things is for the, all the times that this business structure has been pronounced dead, it actually has quite a lot of staying power and just reincarnates itself into sort of different visions. What are you working on these days? What's the next cool thing coming out of it? your uh, Bloomberg terminal? Oh, well, I mean, all kinds of things. <laughs> but uh, certainly watching this diversity issue and how it plays out, I think will be really interesting. And we haven't really seen a lot of activist investors um, in the industrial sector for a while. The last big time I can remember somebody pushing for changes um, at an industrial conglomerate was in 2019 with D.E. Shaw and Emerson Electric. And so it's Emerson, been a while. And Emerson did do some things, They right? did break up, um, although that was not so much... I don't know how much that was connected to the activists. They got a new CEO who had a lot of energy and a lot of vision for what he wanted this company to look like. And I think that was sort of more the driving force in that case. Um, but we really haven't seen that many activists and industrials, which is fascinating. And so I wonder if, you know, now that sort of the pendulum is swinging the other way on diversity, if we might, diversity of businesses, if we might see, um, you know, some activists come out of the woodwork and take a look at these companies. Honeywell stock in particular um, has been under pressure since they announced a CEO change. Uh, and I think investors are just sort of waiting and watching to see what that new CEO, Vimal Kapoor, might do with that mix of businesses. They're sort of the last remaining really big industrial conglomerate that has not done a massive spinoff. They spun off two smaller businesses in 2018, but we haven't seen the kind of full-scale mm. breakup we've seen elsewhere. All right, Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Brooke Sutherland, columnist. She covers uh, industrials and deals for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us here on all things industrial, including Minnesota mining and manufacturing. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Our next guest, I would say, just feels like consistently bullish on the state of California. Several weeks ago, we discussed San Francisco, and the numbers bear out a bullish outlook there. Today, it's the city of angels, Los Angeles. Matt Winker uh, joins us. He is the founder of Bloomberg News. He is the editor emeritus right now of Bloomberg News, uh, joining us via Zoom. Matt, when I think LA, I think Hollywood, because I'm a former media analyst, and Hollywood's kind of on its backside these days with the actors on strike, the writers on strike. Tell us about what the numbers show you about the health of the LA economy. Always great to be with you. And uh, truth be told, it's not just Hollywood actors and screenwriters. Uh, at some point this year, You've had airport shuttle drivers, boat captains, crane operators, sanitation workers, heavy duty mechanics, custodians, longshoremen, which handle, by the way, 40% of US imports from Asia, and nurses and school teachers, all on strike. However, that pervasive perception of uh, paralysis, if you like, is really belied by the reality that not only does Los Angeles still work, it's 10 largest publicly traded companies are number one in sales and employee growth among the same group of firms based in each of the 10 most populated US cities now and for the foreseeable future. And what are we talking about? The 10 run the gamut from banks, financial services, insurance to consumer discretionary, staples and industrials, healthcare. They're doing better as a group than any top 10 companies in any of the top 10 US cities. Now, does this analysis that you've done here um, apply to having more people work from these firms in LA itself, or is it just simply that these firms are based in LA, they're successful? Um, I guess I'm trying to connect the, the, the home base of these companies and actually bringing benefits back for the city itself. Okay, so that's a great question. And of course, none of this would be meaningful unless, as you query, all of the people we're talking about are in LA proper. And we are talking about employee growth within Los Angeles, not outside Los Angeles, inside Los Angeles. And there really is no city that, you know, comes close to um, this double digit sales gain from its top 10 firms. San Jose, by the way, is uh, the closest firm at 10% and LA is way above that and way above Chicago, Phoenix, Philadelphia, uh, San Diego. They're all distant also rands. San Antonio and Dallas are gonna have average revenue decline. So uh, LA really is uh, out front here and employee growth, it's, it's the same story all over again. So, and you can see that by the way, on the Bloomberg terminal, if you were to graph Los Angeles, uh, for example, against the Russell 3000, which is big and small companies alike publicly traded, the gap between the two has widened. It may be close to a record actually right now. Hey Matt, if, if I were to listen to the leaders of states like Florida and Texas, I would get a different narrative. It seems like, they, oh, everybody's leaving California, the high taxes, it's not pro-business, they're coming down here to low or no tax states. What's, what, what, what does the data show you? You could fit Florida, maybe a couple of them inside California. Yep. Without missing a beat. Exactly. You could fit, you could fit probably all of corporate Florida uh, all of corporate Florida inside of uh, LA and not miss a beat. The point is that California is huge, all right? Uh, let's be clear about this. So there's been a, according to the census, you know, a 3% decline in population since 2020 in Los Angeles. Having said that, California is 39 million people, okay? That's at least 10 million more than any other state. Texas is number two. Um, and then corporate California dwarfs corporate anywhere, corporate Texas, corporate New York, corporate Florida, you could fit any of those uh, economies comfortably into California uh, without, without so much as a bulge. 
Um, <laughs> that's the reality. And, you know, look, uh, George Orwell said this best. He said, you know, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. And that's really the reality for California, and particularly Los Angeles, is that it's a very diverse city. By the way, it's still got the largest manufacturing base, that's 500,000 plus people, of any city in the United States. So it's not only, you know, a place where uh, you have, if you like, Hollywood screenwriters, but you also have aerospace going back decades and that's just a bigger footprint than anywhere else. You know, interestingly, Los Angeles is one of those places that's struggling with these um, these empty office or not empty, but much more much high office buildings with very high vacancy rates to the point that that uh, their owners are sometimes giving the keys back to the banks. Um, do you get any sense of how Los Angeles is going to tackle that problem? Is it any different than somewhere like San Francisco might be trying to tackle that problem? Well, look, it's early days. Um, we're talking about a period really since the pandemic, which was unprecedented in our lifetime. So who's to say, you know, what kind of uh, calamity this really is? Um, certainly in the short term, it seems so. But... Uh, look, uh, one of the people that we have followed closely is a 33-year-old co-founder and chief executive officer of a company called Relativity Space. It's an eight-year-old startup, made the first 3D-printed rocket to enter space. Uh, that's the 110-foot Turan 1. It's the largest metal object 3D-printed. Okay, it's right in the backyard of Los Angeles. It's actually in Long Beach, but uh, it's close enough, and their offices are in Los Angeles. And he'll tell you, uh, speaking about downtown and, and everything else, that most of his friends are engineers, but he's friends with artists, people in fashion, people in other industries. And that's the kind of innovation and mentality, he says, that would take to do something as crazy as put a million people on Mars. Um, and I, I forgot to mention, he's from Plano, Texas. Right. <laughs> okay. He, he loves California. So uh, be careful, you know, what the prevailing narrative is, because this being Bloomberg, you look at the data, and as our owner likes to say, um, you know, in God we trust, but everybody else bring data. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Matt Winkler, he is the founder of Bloomberg News. Fascinating column uh, on the great city of Los Angeles and how well it is doing uh, economically at this point. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Goldman is offloading a wealth unit to $240 billion money manager. Sri Nanarajan uh, reported that story. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Sri, what is Goldman doing here? I thought they liked the wealth management business. Well, they still like the wealth management business, but what they're doing here is another strategic flip-flop, and we've seen a little bit of that over the course of the last 12 months. This is a RIA investment advisory business that purchased in 2019 for $750 million dollars. Goldman has a dominant presence when catering to the ultra-rich, the ultra-high-net-worth individuals. Uh, no one does it better than Goldman, you know, yep. people who have 25, 30, 50 million dollars per account. The mass affluent market is one where people could have a million-dollar account. Like on average, 1.2, 1.3 million dollar account is what they got when they purchased United okay. Capital mm -hmm. with about 22,000 clients. Four years in, they've realized that really is not where they want to be. It has been a little bit of a drag on their profit pre-tax margins as well. So they have decided to shed that. They're selling it to this $240 billion wealth manager called Creative Planning, which is run by a very interesting gentleman by the name of Peter Malouk. But for Goldman, what that means is you refocus your attention on the part of the business that you're really good at, which is serving the ultra-rich it mirrors some of their stumbles with consumer banking, which is something we've spoken about a lot over the course of the last year. Again, another way to expand beyond their core roots and go into this retail banking markets. And in many ways, I think it's fair to call it an attempt that flopped and they're getting out of much of that 
uh, through trying to sell off its credit cards businesses, trying to sell off the installment lender it right. bought, uh, shutting off its lending platform for consumers. All that they have left is that Marcus Savings business, which, by the way, is very successful, is a big benefit to Goldman because it doesn't mind uh, accumulating deposits that way because what it has to pay out on that is less than what it has to pay out when it has to raise money from the market. Mm -hmm. So that they will stick with. But pretty much every other vestige of their consumer banking foray is either being, you know, chucked overboard or in the process of being chucked overboard. Well, yeah, so so this was purchased, United Capital, this RIA was purchased for $750 million back in 2019. Is that where does that seven hundred fifty million dollars go? That's a good question because when Goldman announced the deal, uh, which came a little bit after our story uh, a few minutes back, they did confirm the sale of this business. They didn't give us a price, so we don't know what price this platform fetched. But they do have an important line in their press release that says, when this deal closes, which they expect by the end of the fourth quarter, there will be a gain. There will be an accounting gain. That doesn't necessarily mean that the buyer is paying more than seven hundred and fifty million dollars. But the way with most of these transactions is you buy something, you have some goodwill, uh, that goodwill gets amortized, depreciates over the years. Uh, relative to that, I think you will see an accounting gain. And I think that's what they're signaling at rather than necessarily telling us that this is something where they will get in excess of $750 million. Shri, at the beginning of this discussion, you characterized this deal as perhaps a flip-flop. Um, investors don't like flip-flops. Um, what's going on at the senior ranks of Goldman Sachs here? A lot of flip-flopping in terms of what they own, what they don't own, strategies. Two ways to look at it, right? Uh, when David Solomon took over in October 2018, there were two key pillars, which is expand the businesses you're really good at, grow earnings there. They benefited, hugely benefited from that boom in trading and yep. deal making set off by the pandemic and every other dynamic that continued after that. But the other important pillar for David Solomon and his management team was to try and improve the stock multiple, try and convince investors that the stock is worth a lot more, that their price to book ratio, price to earnings, whatever fancy technical mm -hmm. metric you want to throw out there, deserves more. They haven't really succeeded in doing that. Okay. There's been a lot of book value growth because of earnings growth, but not any success in convincing investors that you can do the multiple growth. Maybe now that they've done a strategy pivot or have done this yep. flip-flop, they're perhaps in the place where they want to be and maybe investors come on board. All right, Shri, thanks so much for joining us. Glad you could join us here in studio. Shri Nanarajan uh, from Bloomberg News. He covers Goldman Sachs. He covers the big investment banks. He is all over Goldman Sachs and including some of the recent changes in strategy. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Hawaiian Electric Industries, the stock's up 43%. Um, looks like the company's saying, hey, may, wait a minute, maybe we're not so much to blame, maybe the... Uh, there's a they're putting out a statement on maybe there's some other causes here. and as and as uh, bailey was talking about it's still down 67 percent yep. this year yep so it's interesting so we'll have to get the latest here but let's do that uh with an analyst who covers the bonds here covers the credit side of the utilities jamin patel he's a senior fixed income strategist for bloomberg intelligence uh joining us via zoom uh jamin what do you know about what's happening here with uh hawaiian electric quite the turnaround here well you know um what um, we're, we're really very much in the early days here, right? So you're gonna, you've, you've had allegations being filed, you've had some responses, you've had some findings, but over the next uh, you know, weeks, months, as, as the PG&E case showed us, this sort of thing can take a really long time. There'll be more findings, there'll be more allegations and so on. But this latest one seems to be very interesting. Um, up until we, you know, this, this particular statement that came out from the company, um, Hawaiian Electric had really not mentioned anything about de-energizing its lines. In fact, it had said that it, it didn't de-energize its lines simply because uh, they were concerned about uh, emergency usage, hospitals, etc. that would, that would uh, you know, be damaged, obviously, if, if, the, if the power is turned off. But today, they, they came out with a statement saying that the first fire, the one that occurred in the morning, had been contained, and then according to the Maui Department of Fire, it had been extinguished. Um, then the second fire, which was the one that I believe created most of the damage, uh, didn't really start till about six hours later. And they uh, apparently, or, or a little bit more than six hours, they had de-energized their lines, presumably because of the first fire. So um, 
At the end of the day, it really depends upon the findings um, that, that come out over the next few weeks and months, what the courts decide, uh, and then how that liability is, is apportioned. All right, so just the, the Bloomberg reporting here, Hawaii utility soars after pointing blame for the fire at the county. Hawaiian Electric says power lines de-energized uh, before the fire. Yeah, and I guess the the interesting bit is there there is that they're sort of drawing this line. This was not a continuation of the first fire, but rather a second fire. And okay. of course, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I think I think what they uh, you know what what the uh, litigants, um, maybe not the county so much, but certainly the litigants will will try to claim uh, and try to prove is that the first the first fire had not been extinguished and, and had eventually led to the second fire. If that's the case, then the question becomes, well, is, is Maui County through the Department of Fire uh, liable at the end of the day? Um, I, I, you know, and, and in addition to all of this, I think you sort of have to kind of take a step back. You, um, so, you know, what's going to affect the bonds uh, and, and the equity, which is, you know, where, where we'd started this. Um, the, the, the whole question depends upon how much the liability is how much HE is, is determined to be uh, uh, responsible for, how much of it th will they share. Uh, and then once that's determined, will that be tax deductible for the company? Because that obviously reduces the, the overall liability. And then whether the uh, regulators will allow them to recover that liability as well as the, the obviously the restoration costs that they have to go through, through rates. Um, if they don't, uh, that's you know obviously not good for the bonds and 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 certainly not good for the equity. So, J Jamie, what has the company done to date to maybe from a you know, balance sheet perspective to prepare for you know maybe some some downside scenarios? Well, so far they've, they've you know there's not much they can do on the balance sheet side, but they have tried to shore up their liquidity. They drew down the two revolvers uh, that they have, one for 170 million. Uh, up at the parent, and then 200 million down at the intermediate parent Hawaiian Electric Company. Um, so that plus uh, any dividends that may come up from uh, American Savings Bank uh, and any cash that they have on hand um, will hopefully take them through the restoration period through to the end of the year, so that they can uh, they can get their uh, uh, power up and running to all the all the customers that that don't have it at this point. Now I'm looking at bonds of Hawaiian Electric. Uh, due in December 2028. Uh, it looks like they're trading around 86 cents on the dollar. How should we interpret that, Jamin? How dire are things for, for the company uh, with respect to its uh, creditworthiness? So you have to sort of differentiate between the bonds up at the parent level and then the intermediate holding company and down at the utilities. The parent level bonds have, uh, you know, and this is sort of what differentiates uh, Hawaiian Electric from PG&E. PG&E had just the electric utility as its only subsidiary. Uh, Hawaiian Electric has American Savings Bank as a separate subsidiary uh, through which they can uh, upstream dividends in the normal course of business um, to, to continue to service their debt. Um, down at the utility level, you don't have that. Everything is purely dependent upon the earnings at the utility in, in terms of the ability to service debt. But I think, I, you know, we haven't seen the bonds move as much today, as, certainly not as much as the share prices. Um, I think, you know, two reasons for that. One is the liquidity. Uh, most of these bonds are privately placed, uh, don't trade as much as you would expect. But two, also the junk ratings on the bonds, right? And the bonds are going to trade in line with, uh, with their ratings until, until there is a change in those ratings. So, Jamin, for these utilities, whether it's, you know, you know, the out in California that we saw several years ago or here in Hawaii, there's just a ton of risk that these utilities have in, in a world of climate change and, and, and more and more fires, some of which are caused by utility lines. Is there any way for them to insure against that? Or if you're a creditor or you're a shareholder, you just have to assume this growing risk going forward? Yeah, so I, you know, most of the transmission assets that are owned by utilities, and those are the ones that are you know, generally the most susceptible, whether it's to hurricanes or to wildfires, are generally not insured. And, and the understanding there is that if they are damaged, uh, regulators will allow the utility to recover through increased rates, um, uh, recovery of those assets and to rebuild those assets. Certainly that's what we saw with Energy New Orleans when, when Katrina hit, that's what we saw with CNP and, and FPNL when, um, uh, when both those were hit by hurricanes. Um, 
you know, it remains to be seen what's going to happen over here. At PG&E, there wasn't the full recovery uh, because PG&E was found to be liable uh, to, to a significant extent. So I think, I think utilities are not those boring uh, uh, investments that, mm. uh, that they have traditionally been, um, you know, sort of buy in and, and put away. Um, I think you've got more risk perhaps at, at, uh, at individual utilities than at the holding company. To the extent that a holding company owns more than one utility, diversification is probably the way to go. You have a utility that's operating in one jurisdiction um, uh, and, and in, in different geographic uh, localities uh, as opposed to another. So when you've got uh, multiple utilities, you've got a little bit of diversification that, that uh, helps to prevent um, a, a hit up at the parent level and for the equity. Yeah, that's interesting. And is P and is PG and E is is that the sort of situation that we really should see as indicative of how this might play out, or do you think we could see some sort of uh, answer as to who's liable, et cetera, more quickly? And I'm I'm sorry, we have only about twenty seconds here. So, uh, in in terms of uh, your question is 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 are we wondering how this is going to play out um, in, yeah. in, in relative to PG&E? So PG&E is, you know, obviously you, you had a much bigger utility. Um, the, the advantage that PG&E had as it came out of bankruptcy was it shared California primarily with two other uh, solid utilities, investment grade utilities. So California was able to set up this wildfire fund, uh, $20 billion plus, which all of the utilities have had to contribute into and will continue to contribute into and will be at least partially be able to recover through rates. Uh, that sort of, I, I don't want to use the word subsidizes, but maybe that is, is, is the one that comes first to mind, uh, subsidizes PG&E's liabilities uh, with, with the right. other two. But of course, it works all, all ways. Right? Yep. All right, Jamin, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you uh, getting some of your analysis here today. Big news for Hawaiian Electric. Uh, Jamin Patel, Senior Fixed Income Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from our Bloomberg uh, Princeton campus. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.